Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, we are delighted to have back with us a woman who committed her life to public service after personal and professional tragedy at the Jonestown Cult Compound in Guyana over 40 years ago. That's right. Democrat Jackie Speer is retiring from Congress after seven terms in Washington, where she took on the Pentagon over sexual assaults and harassment in the military and was one of Nancy Pelosi's most trusted lieutenants. She's got a remarkable personal history and quite a career in local, state, and federal government. And Jackie Spear, welcome back to Political Breakdown. So good to have you back. So Thank good. you. Great to be with you. And we should say before we start that we recorded this earlier in December. Uh, so we want to talk to you about some things that have happened in the news. Uh, in particular, uh, the passage in the lame duck session of the uh, Respect for Marriage Act guaranteeing legal rights for same-sex and interracial couples. Describe uh, the mood in the caucus when that passed. So I was in the Rayburn room when the speaker um, actually signed the bill, which now is being sent to the president. And the room was filled with um, gay and lesbian couples and people that had worked decades on this. And it was thrilling. It was it was wonderful to see the love and excitement on their faces and the sense of satisfaction that finally, finally they're free. And my only disappointment is that it came on the heels of a Supreme Court decision that has disenfranchised women from being in control of their bodies. Did you, I mean, though, expect... Obviously, that was not the way you all had hoped that this would come down. But on the other hand, it was a bipartisan vote. And I think a year ago, none of us would have expected that this would get sent to the, you know, the president's desk. I mean, how did that kind of evolve over the last few months? And are you surprised still? I'm not surprised that we were successful because, in truth, the Supreme Court had already acted. So, you know, marriage equality is... Um, the law of the land, but we still had a a law on the books that was preventing uh, us from having the clarity. And the court decision obviously can, um, as we have seen now through (laughs) Roe versus Dobbs, can be changed. So it was important to to solidify um, marriage equality. And I think, as we must do, is we we strike when the opportunity occurs. And the Clarence Thomas uh, concurring uh, opinion sent shivers down everyone's um, saying backs. that he thought perhaps they should revisit uh, right, Obergefell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
talk. There were 39 Republicans in the House who voted for this, um, and I'm wondering what impact you think personal stories had on individual members. I know Chuck Schumer. I did not know his his his, his daughter is married to a woman. Uh, he talked about that. I didn't know that. About but, to have it, their baby. Yeah, yeah. His first grandchild, I think. Um, so I think some personal stories. Some of it was political. Uh, Ken Calvert in Southern California um, had a contest on his hands that was real. Will Rawlins, a great young candidate, U.S. attorney. We had him on the show after the after we thought <laughs> after he might have won. won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and the community there um, embraces uh, everyone, and so he flipped. He didn't flip because he wanted to because. Of a personal, well, I guess it was a personal experience. He could lose his election, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I mean, there the were some of those cases. Have just changed so ra- the politics, and it's yeah. you know so much. And I hate to even have to say this. So much of what members do doesn't have anything to do with their beliefs. Mm. It has more to do with their reelections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other uh, sort of big bill that was passed was a military authorization bill, record spending more than the Biden administration wanted. It included, though, um, some things around uh, sexual assault and how it's handled at the Pentagon. This has been an issue you've worked on for years. What's in it and like what it, it, do you feel good leaving after this final sort of passage? So last year... In the National Defense right. Authorization Act, I got the amendment in. I mean, it was a bill, but they call it an amendment when you p- plug it into the NDAA um, that took sexual assault cases out of the chain of command. It also made sexual harassment a crime, but it didn't take it out of the chain of command. So this year, we got sexual harassment out of the chain of command, which means you're, we're going to have um, specially trained investigators and special trial counsel that will review these cases and make a determination. So um, we have come a long way in 10 years. But boy, it was a tough 10 years for me. I'm curious how much Republican support there was for that, because a bill like this has things, you know, you don't get everything you want. You got to make compromises. How how did Republicans feel about that change? So when I first brought sexual assault to the House Armed Services Committee, I didn't even have Democratic support for it. It was almost seen as being unpatriotic to not protect the military and defend it. And my point was, we're there to protect the service members who serve. And when you're more concerned about being assaulted by the person standing next to you than you do the enemy, we have a problem. So it took a while for members on both sides of the aisle to recognize that we had a serious problem. I mean, 30,000 service members, men and women a year, sexually assaulted. And only about 7,000 will report for fear of retaliation. So hopefully this is going to be a sea change. I'm, I'm optimistic, but cautiously so, because there's still more that needs to be done. I also got a lot of um, programming in for suicide, because suicides among service members is on the rise, particularly in Alaska. And so we were able to get a number of provisions in to create Arctic pay, to provide them, believe it or not, one trip home uh, on the taxpayers a year because it's so remote. We do that for uh, many of our service members when they're abroad, but um, we weren't doing it for Alaska. So another big December news was uh, the decision by Senator Kristen Sinema to become an independent, uh, leaving, although I think she's still going to caucus with Democrats. I mean, you've 
obviously served in the other house, but you know her. Um, what I mean, what are your thoughts? So about I served that? with yeah, her. Well, you did yeah, serve yeah, with her yeah, in the house, yeah, yeah. for Before six she got years. Elected, yeah. Um, Kirsten Cinema is about Kirsten Cinema, and making sure that um, the spotlight is always on her, and um, that might be a little harsh. But it's just the truth. Do you feel like this is going to significantly change any sort of calculations for Democrats next year? I think that, well, time will tell. I think that it wouldn't surprise me if she ends up caucusing with the Republicans. I mean, it's really on what side of the bread is it buttered? How, How much of it was just like the reality that she can't win a Democratic primary in Arizona? It's all about Kristen Sinema. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, the that, that's the beginning, yeah. the middle, and the end. <laughs> so the House uh, elected new leadership. Um, Hakeem Jeffries is going to be the new uh, um, majority leader, perhaps speaker. One Minority day. leader. Minority leader. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and right, yes. Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, also on Pete Aguilar from uh, San Bernardino. Redlands is going to also be part of the leadership team. Uh, what do you make of that? That's a huge one-time, at-a-time generational change. It's an important change. And they're talented people. They're going to serve our caucus well. My only concern is I don't think we yet appreciate how significant it was, how important it was to have Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, from San Francisco. And now, for all intents and purposes, we're going to have in the Democratic caucus in Congress two leaders from New York City. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn, I think. Aren't they <laughs> both, both from Brooklyn? Maybe they're both from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. So, I think that um, you know, we're going to have to be very um, cognizant of that and make sure that uh, California, which is the largest state, the largest Democratic uh, group that caucuses, uh, has um, you know gets their fair share of. I mean, does Aguilar help with that? I think he he does certainly, but he's Southern California. Well, there's nobody <laughs> from the middle of the country, and there is there still is heavy, heavy East Coast. Very heavy East Coast, some West Coast, but yeah, middle of the country is somewhat red, too. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Spear. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Congresswoman Jackie Speer. She's retiring after seven terms in Congress. She represents a little bit of San Francisco's west side and a large swath of San Mateo County as well, including Daly City, South San Francisco, and Redwood City. And Congresswoman Speer, uh, we've talked with you before about your incredible personal story. I never get tired of hearing it because it is so compelling. And it had so much to do, I think, with the way you look at government and life and issues. You know, we referenced what happened in in Guyana uh, with Jonestown when you were an aide to uh, Congressman Ryan. How did that, you know, how did that affect your, you know, desire to get into public policy and service? It had everything to do with my willingness to jump in and run for the congressman's seat back in 1979 because I didn't want to be remembered as a survivor of Jonestown. And I had made a commitment on that airstrip when my body was you know, blown up that if I survived, I would dedicate my life to public service. Now, as a young woman, um, as an intern for then Assemblyman Lee Orion, I would come into... Um, the Capitol in Sacramento and think, oh, wow, this is, but I don't have what it takes Mm -hmm. to run for office. And I tell young people this all the time. We all have self-doubts. We all think we can't do what we can do. And so I ran for that seat and lost. Um, And I have the record of the longest time from the first time you run for office in Congress to the second time when you get elected. It was 29 years. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone's going to beat that. Um, But I, uh, because of what happened to me in Jonestown, um, because of um, my husband being killed in an automobile, automobile accident when I was pregnant with our second child, I have this sense of the shortness of life and the fact that fate plays a role in our lives. So I, um, I kind of gained a fearlessness about taking on issues that maybe I wouldn't have taken on had I not had those experiences and a, a sense that life is so fleeting that you, you just have to act. Now or never. Do you feel watching the sort of rise of extremism globally now? Like, is there anything you learned from that experience with Jonestown and the cult, you know, that had developed and really taken over a lot of powerful people's sort of minds? I mean, there's they had a lot of connections, right? Um, like, when you reflect on that, what, do you, what did you take away? How are you looking at this differently than somebody who didn't live through that? Well, I looked at the experience in Jonestown and the cult figure of Jim Jones, and early on, I was comparing him to Donald Trump. Um, both cult personalities, um, both draw people to them, um, both are megalomaniacs, uh, both put themselves before anyone else. Um, and then you have the overlay of social media, which we didn't have back in 1978, and how you can be uh, radicalized online. I mean, look what happened to Paul Pelosi. This was an individual who kind of went down a rabbit hole and decided he was going to take out the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So this this uh, move to extremism is is frightening. And what's also frightening is the, the extreme organizations, the Oath Keepers, uh, the Three Percenters, um, the Proud Boys, they look to former military or active military to recruit because they're trained. And it's um, 
really dis- discouraging that that people who have served our country, um, who've you know put the flag first, are, are willing to undermine it. Although we've seen you know just this uh, recently in in Germany where there was a coup yes, that yeah. they uncovered similar, very similar QAnon inspired and all that stuff. You know, um, I'm wondering. You know, the experiences that you had in Jonestown. I'm wondering, like, just personally, one can easily imagine you had PTSD. You know, uh, whether they called it that back then is another thing. But like, do you? Does it affect you to this day? I mean, how how does it? You know, how do you think about it? Does it come back in the middle of the night sometimes? I mean, it's, it was such a dramatic, horrible thing. When I see some of the footage, um, it it it's very jarring. When uh, a car backfires or there's a 21-gun salute, it it impacts me. I would say that um, after after I returned from Guyana, they um, I was at the Oak Knoll Label Hospital, and they had me see a psychiatrist for a year. Hmm. Um, and then I, I basically, at the last visit, he asked me about um, my parents. And, and I thought, this isn't about my parents. This is about... <laughs> You know, he he wanted to go down <laughs> like way another back. rabbit You're hole. Like <laughs> so, um, so I would say that I have recovered well, and and yet there are flashbacks from time to time. Yeah, yeah. and you were in the Capitol on January sixth. Yeah. as well. So that, of course, was another experience that was so traumatizing that as I was lying on the f- floor of the gallery and. Being told to you know take off your member's pin and um, mm. and lie down, and then the gunshot rang out in the speaker's lobby, and I put my cheek to the floor and it was cold, and there was this sense of resignation that came over me that I didn't die in Jonestown, but I'm going to die in this tabernacle of democracy. Wow. That's how real it seemed because you know we didn't know who had guns and who, where the shot rang out from. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer, here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Spear. She represents the west side of San Francisco and a large part of San Mateo County for a few more days uh, before she retires. Um, You know, there was this recent ceremony at the Capitol honoring the Capitol Police and the families uh, of those who, some who, who had died and others were there. And some refused to shake the hand of Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader. Um, you were there, right? You were I was there. there. Yeah. Were you surprised by that? And like, what, what was the what was the sense in the room? Was there a gasp, or was it like, no, that you know, that was very understandable given how the Republican Party has reacted to all this? So we were in the rotunda, and there, it was packed. So I actually didn't see them not shaking um, the hands, but you know. They have endured so much and have been uh, diminished by the Republican uh, caucus. And I, I think that was a really important lesson for the Republicans. You can't get away with you know, kissing the ring of Donald Trump, who created the most ghastly set of circumstances in our country since the burning of the Capitol in 1814 by the British. So, um, you know, it was very personal for them. And I understood that. Yeah. yeah. What do you, I mean, watching Kevin McCarthy attempt to take over <laughs> speaker, we'll see when the actual vote comes down. I mean, he and Nancy Pelosi are such different people on all levels, right? Um, I'm just curious, like how you 
see this next Congress playing out and, and what your experiences with him have been like that might sort of inform that? Well, I think it'll be a circus. And I think we should prepare ourselves for gridlock and uh, the Republican caucus evolving into many speakers. I don't think that Kevin McCarthy will last more than six months as speaker. Uh, And they've got, he's got plenty of fringe uh, members who want to be in a powerful position. So I think he's, it's going to be very, um, very unlikely that he will remain in that position for very long. There's a little bit of talk, maybe it's hope, uh, among some Democrats or even, you know, relatively moderate Republicans that perhaps there could be some kind of a consensus speaker that Democrats could support, assuming that they would agree not to do all these investigations. I mean, is that just crazy talk? Crazy talk. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. So it seems like there will be investigations, uh, you know, and that might be part of the deal for McCarthy to get the votes he needs. Uh, Hunter Biden, January 6th, the Mar-a-Lago raid. How do you see that playing out? Not well. Uh, They will continue to do that in hopes that it will galvanize support for a Republican nominee for the presidency in As 2024. Benghazi did, perhaps. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a replay of Benghazi. But if you look at the Republicans, they don't know when to stop. For 64 times, we had to vote on their efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act until they learned that, oh, people actually like this. So they will overplay their hand, and it will hurt them. Yeah. So there are many members of Congress that have chosen to stick around Longer than you are in in their lifespan. I mean, obviously, we've talked about just how much service you've done. But why retire now? What what influenced that decision? So I I was walking to the Capitol earlier this year, um, and it was the combination of um, the Uvalde killings and my concern about gun violence prevention and then the Dobbs decision. Those are two issues that I am so closely aligned with. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to weigh in for much longer. I did actually get arrested for um, my conduct objecting to the Dobbs decision with my 16 other colleagues um, this year. But um, Wait, talk about that? Yeah, I don't yeah, remember hearing remember about that. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> do you have a booking photo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. Was that Capitol Police? Or yeah, who I think you were Cap- Capitol Police. We were, wow. we were arrested. And I felt so strongly that we had to do more than just tell stories. I said, we have to do an act of civil disobedience. And so 16 of my colleagues joined me um, in getting arrested hmm. because we, um, you know, we, we did not obey the Capitol Police when they say, said disperse. So um, what I would say is this. I am not losing my voice. I'm going to continue to speak out on the issues that I am concerned about. This was a very personal decision. I had made a promise to my husband um, that once I got the sexual assault out of the military, um, that I would leave Congress. I made that promise. I thought he would allow me to withdraw that promise, but, <laughs> but he didn't. So here I am. <laughs> would you? Would you still? You know, would it be your preference on some level? It would. Yeah. Yeah. You'd like to stay. Oh, you know, I love I love what I do, but I'm going to find an, a new way of doing it. Yeah. 
we, we alluded to the attack on Paul Pelosi. What effect do you think that had on the speaker? Uh, because, you know, Marisa was one of the first to say, you know, because she, she told Anderson Cooper, it's going to affect my decision on whether to stay or not. And it seemed like it affected her in a way that she was going to st- wanted to stay. You know, you could easily understand how she would think, you know, I'm going to get out of here before something terrible happens. Worse it seems happens. like it made her double down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was that your take? Well, four years ago, when there was a challenge to her speakership, she said she just wanted to to do it for four more years. Um, so, but if she decided that she wanted to stay on as the leader of the caucus, I can guarantee you she would have had the votes. Um, I think that she feels so strongly that, um, and she's very concerned about the representation of the Bay Area and what we're going to lose. But I do think that um, what happened to Paul, which was intended for her, weighed heavily on her. And, you know, there's another there's another chapter in her life, too. And there's been speculation for a long time that the reason why the ambassadorship to Italy has been <laughs> open since the president took office has a lot to do with his interest of wanting to appoint her. So whether that happens or not, whether she does it or not, I don't know. Christmas in Rome. As she, Sounds as pretty she good. said to me, I could have had that 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what about other members? Do you think it, or you for that matter? I mean, did it affect the way? I mean, that was, you don't have that much security. You don't have any security. You walked in here without any, um, except, except for your loyal aide. But, <laughs> She's like, hey, I'm over here. <laughs> um, but what do, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, I know there's been talk about getting more money into the budget yeah. for protection. We are very vulnerable. And the fact that the inciting of violence has been acceptable to many in um, public life is deeply concerning. We have got to lower the temperature and the rhetoric. I don't see that happening come January, but that is my hope. That's my plea, because if we have got to conduct ourselves in a manner that um, is representational of what we want the rest of the the population in the country to do. You know, we talked earlier about the work you've done on sexual assault in the military, clearly that was one of your you know, signature issues, I would say. Is that the work you're most proud of or is there, are there other policy areas you would, you would point to? Well, I've, I've done a lot as chair of the Military Personnel Subcommittee um, to help us recognize that when the service member serves, so does his or her family. So a lot of work there, suicide um, Prevention being another key component. Child care, 19,000 service member families on wait lists for child care. Um, pediatric cancer research, $120 million there. The Me Too Congress Act, making sure that members of Congress don't sexually harass um, the staff and, uh, and interns and fellows. Uh, those, those are some of the, the issues that I, I look back on. And, feel. and then San Francisco Bay Restoration. You know, we have been shortchanged in our estuary for decades. And we got that into the National Defense Authorization Act. So now it's in um, the EPA's jurisdiction. And there's money that's being set aside that will significantly help in terms of restoring the bay and recognizing that it's the water for 20 million Bay Area residents. Yeah. Your uh, successor will be someone who worked for you, uh, Kevin Mullen, the assemblyman. Uh, what is it like to have you know a former staffer uh, follow you to Congress? Well, he is a, more than a staffer. <laughs> <laughs> he he was he served in the assembly for almost ten years, and uh, he you know has a record of his own. He's done great work. He's delivered for the district. Uh, he will chart his own 
path. Um, and I will be there if he calls, but I'm not going to tell him what to do. <laughs> Did he ask for advice? <laughs> Pardon me? Did he ask you for advice? Oh, from time to time, but yeah. He's his own man. Yeah. Well, tell us what's next. You've said you might start a foundation. Can you talk about that yes. at all? Yes. So um, I'm starting a foundation in San Mateo County. I hope to be able to see us replicated around the Bay Area. I'm going to seed it with a million dollars from my campaign fund. And I'm going to be raising money for the next year. We have 27,000, 20, excuse me, 23,000 children in San Mateo County living below the federal poverty level of $27,000 a year for a family of four. Think about that wow. in the Bay Area. Um, we have 20 billionaires that live in San Mateo County. We have 5,000 millionaires um, who you know, make a million dollars or more a year. And most of their giving goes nationally or internationally. So I'm I'm making the case that hidden in plain sight in our own communities um, are people in need. A high increase in um, domestic violence, a 20% increase. Um, we have the highest percentage of new food stamp recipients in San Mateo County in the entire state, fourth richest county in the country. So will, you, will the foundation be giving money to groups that are doing that work already on the ground? Is that yes. the idea? That's the intent. Yeah. And as we know, you know, child poverty was lifted. 50% of those in poverty were lifted with just a $3,000 tax credit a year during COVID. So there's other ways of doing it yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, Jackie Spear, thanks again for coming in. Thank you for your many, many decades of public service. And I, you know, I know we'll have you back talking about your foundation yeah. and other things. But you thank got you a lot for more. coming in. And yeah. we should say, folks, should listen back to that 2018 interview we did with her. It'll be in the show notes. You can hear more about her incredible biography. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Brendan Willard and our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. And for all of us here at KQED, we wish you happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, maybe happy New Year, why not? And hopefully a little break from politics. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.